Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Coffee and Services. This week I'm joined by Pete Salmon, a name that will be familiar to many of you out there who use Twitter, given that Pete has gained quite a following due to the great pictures he posts of Roman archaeology. You might also be aware his photos feature in a newly published book, Hadrian's Wall, A Journey Through Time, written by David Brees and with illustrations by Mark Richards. On today's show, we're chatting about the book, Pete's approach to photography, his favourite spots on the wall, and volunteering at the Vindolander excavations. There's also talk about some pictures he took of damage to the wall at the hands, or shall I say the feet, of some tourists, which went viral, and how he learned from this that what the media put out there is not necessarily what your initial message was supposed to be. On a more positive note, though, I think one of the most important things that comes out of Pete's story is that As he discusses, he came to Roman archaeology purely via volunteering, not having undertaken any formal qualifications, but he's been able to get a lot out of his participation in the subject, and now his name is on the cover of a book alongside the Lord Commander of the Wall himself, David Brees, which I think really goes to show everyone has a contribution to make. Now before jumping into the show, I just want to draw your attention to emergefestival.co.uk. On the weekend of the 27th to the 28th of September, this event is occurring at museums, galleries and cultural landmarks across London, including the Natural History Museum, the Horniman Museum and Gardens, the Barbican and even Jimi Hendrix's old house. And these locations will be putting on a range of events going on long into the night with experts, activities, DJs and live music all thrown into the mix. Personally though, I check out the event on Friday evening at the London Mithraeum, which features according to the description on the website, the Louis Theroux of the Roman world. Not sure what that means, but I'm definitely going to take it. Anyway, have a look at emergefestival.co.uk to see all about that, and I'll definitely be pushing it pretty much every week for the next month, so get used to it. Anyway, now on to the show. job in the late district 30 years ago and never went home so now i live up in the lakes now i'm a north manchester lad originally but i've been up here uh yeah 30 years so okay i I actually work uh, work and live in the late district again uh, a friend uh, runs this place in elterwater so um i go up there so actually keswick was just us to go was just me going up to bookends just for the afternoon really just to go in and see if the book was in stock because steve owns two shops who's published the hadrian's wall book so okay yes it did yeah which was good (laughs) yeah i can imagine i can imagine going to lake district is is the sort of place that when you're there you think no i'm I'm good i'm I'm not leaving here this is this is nice (laughs) (laughs) uh silly season at the moment but uh you know um Come the September again, it'll go quiet and yeah, you know, get the fells back to uh, to to myself, pretty much. Yeah, I can imagine at the moment it must be it must be pretty full on with tourists in the area. It is, yeah, absolutely, yeah, which is a good thing. We need the tourism and we need the the business, but uh, yeah, it's quite nice when it, September happens and it it sort of goes back to sort of a little bit normal again, really, because a lot of people up at the moment they're. They're not quite used to the tiny little roads we have, especially in Langdale and things like that. Mm. So there's a lot of gridlocking and things like that. So yeah, yeah. But anyway, all parts of the business. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as, as I was talking a little bit, a little bit about later, like Hadrian's Wall, where that's so reliant on people going up there and visiting, although they don't always necessarily treat the monument in the right way. But uh, we will circle back around to that in a, a little bit later. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, just to kind of begin with, though, uh, the, the reason I asked you to, uh, to come on today is because you've got the book that's just come out, um, Hadrian's Wall, a, a Journey Through Time, which uh, has got David Breeze, who's the, the author of it, and then Lionscapes by Mark Richard and yourself doing the uh, photography. Yeah. So, I mean, if you could just, like, chat a little bit about... I mean, what the book is, obviously, I mean, obviously it does what it says on the tins, but Hadrian's Wall, but exactly like what was the, what was the aim with it? And also, I suppose, how did it, how did it all come into being? How did you, uh, Mark and David come together to, to produce this, this volume? Uh, well, it started with an idea that David Breeze had because he's, he's, um, when you're writing books and, um, uh, sort of generalised books and so on, or, or even their archaeological reports about Hadrian's Wall and the forts, what you end up doing is you end up sort of what, what are called mission creep, because you start off maybe talking about the Hadrianic gates, and then, of course, you start to then move into, uh, you know, Severan alterations or return from the wall or the fort decision on some of the turrets and so on. So then you, you it becomes a sort of a, a multi um, uh, period discussion. So what David was 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 origi- his original idea was to do a book where you went right. Okay, let's do a chapter on pre-wall, a landscape before the wall, uh, a section on uh, including ph- photography, just on so you could open the book and say, I want to know what the um, Hadrianic section of the wall was like. So just photographs of that, um, and so just photograph that, and then move through the through the. Um, timeline of the wall to the very end of the Roman period and also photographs of what you could see at that time so all right if you've got an interest in post-Roman or the sort of the ending of the, the, the use of the, the Hadrian's Wall by the Roman army you could sort of go to chapter eight or whatever and just look at photographs and text from that particular period try and split up this um, Hadrian's Wall into a timeline as the name of the book was sort of journey through uh, time so that was his initial idea, and uh, he'd been a long-time friend with Mark Richards um, for forever, the illustrator and guidebook writer, and um, suggested the idea to Mark of doing illustrations. And, I, and then um, I'd been doing some work with Mark on different projects, Walking Hadrian's Highway, which was a route he, he proposed and published in 2017. And he brought me on board to say to David, I've got this guy who'll do lots of photography for you, he's I think he's he's okay, so very good. So um, yeah, so I came on board and went to bookends and met David for the first time, and we sort of sat down and David gave his idea of what we wanted to do. Had a quick discussion about that, and uh, then um, David got back to me with a list of around about two hundred photographs in in a sort of chapter order. Basically, it was just like, well, work your way through the pictures and then get back to me, and we'll look at a, a two year period of doing this until the the pilgrimage. Uh, he was sort of looking to get it out around the time of this, the Hadrian Wall, Hadrian's Wall pilgrimage, which is obviously just finished, which is the 10 yearly um, trip to the walls. Mm, nice. I mean, it is quite interesting what you were saying about, oh, just the idea of a book that revolves a lot around the actual images of the wall. I mean, obviously, Hadrian's Wall itself is very scenic, and there are a number of books that have images on it, but particularly yeah. when you look at a number of, uh, I suppose, academic books, you often get that case of, go to figure one, go to figure two, and there's like the collection of photos yeah. just in the middle. Whereas yeah. I guess what you're saying is the book is actually much more structured around the photos and they're kind of allowed to take more centre stage, which, I mean, something like Hadrian's Wall, like you can see the, <laughs> you can see why, given that like, you know, the landscape in itself is yeah. so impressive. Well, I had 
to slightly change my mindset because I, I'll try and go up there, sunset, sunrise, uh, get at very atmospheric shots, but it, it wasn't really what David was after. What David was after was more um, architectural and informative pictures. So instead of me trying to get a, the mild castle in with a great sunset and this, that and the other, I had to sort of set away from that and basically said what I need is good light, good uh, contrast and uh, just get the, the sections that he wanted. So I had to sort of change my mindset about how I actually photographed to, to a degree there. And uh, sometimes it worked and sometimes David was uh, not quite what he wanted. So I, I, I had to reshoot a couple of times. But um, that was that was all to, to the good because I learned more about the wall doing that. And um, I could see what he, his point of view really. So yeah, yeah. And also some of the features are very some of them, for example, bolt holes um, where the bolt drew into the wall, for example, at uh, Denton Turret and unfinished or marking outlines at, at the Mile Castles. You know, it, it all depends on the light sometimes, as you can see those or not, or actually having enough uh, light and contrast uh, and shadow to actually pick those out. So sometimes, yeah, it was just a matter of returning again. I guess on part of the equipment, is it also about having the eye for what you want to take, if that makes sense? About I suppose, what do you need to make a good photo? Is, is I guess is what I'm getting at. To say it's not a very easy question to answer, I suppose. There's <laughs> uh, a bit of everything, but if you've not got an eye for it, then, it, then, you, then, you, then you've lost it. Um, just a, a friend of mine went to Cheltenham Art College, and she went on a holiday with a friend. Uh, now, a friend had a really smart SLR. She had a tiny compact camera, but she had a fine art degree. The pictures she took uh, were slightly grainier and not as good quality, but they were far superior to her friend with the SLR because her friend was just sort of blasting photographs left, right and centre. So a lot of them were sharp, but very sharp pictures of lamp posts or trees growing out of people's heads and things like that. So, hmm. yeah, it's an, I mean, in terms of uh, photography equipment, I have a Canon SLR, which I shoot uh, RAW on, which is a very high... Um, uncompressed uh, files, which means you can sort of tinker with them a lot more. Uh, but I also have a smaller, what they call micro four-thirds, which is like a sort of a cut-down SLR, if you like, with interchangeable lenses. So I, I use those. Depending on what I'm photographing, I'll use both of those cameras. So, yeah. Um, a tripod when it when it's required in lower light as well. So mm. I was going to say, nowadays, with the advent of social media, Twitter, and I suppose particularly for, for photography, Instagram is a big one as well. You're seeing, I keep using this term a lot now when I talk to people on the podcast about social media, the democratisation of this thing, that it's a lot easier yeah. for people to, to put their work out there. And, and you yourself, I, I see you generate quite a, quite a notable following on Twitter through uh, publishing your photos. On the photography side of things, like how did you get into that then? Has photography always been something that you were very interested in, or is it something that you came to a bit later? Uh, no, I've always been photographing. I've always taken photographs from... My mother was a, a good artist, uh, but I'm not me, not so much. But I suppose I've sort of inherited some of her artistic genes, so mainly I've sort of used that in a photography way. So I've always photographed um, from quite an early age, which is an old Kodak and a... 110 little cassette uh, film you put in these things then moving up to SLR and uh, 35 mil so um, so I've got a quite a nice social history going back so I, I could never understand why other people just didn't want to photograph the scene from early on it, it, it always struck me as um, just something I was wanting to record so I, I'd go on holiday with people and they wouldn't take a single photograph and I, mm. I, could, I could never work out why really so but uh, um, yeah, so that, that's why I took it up, and, I, and I've travelled a lot. My uh, both parents were school teachers, so you know they would 
you know, we just tent the camp and uh, tent the tent and go off camping in Europe for two or three weeks in the summer. And um, so there was always plenty to, to see. My dad was always photographing Roman sites and Greek sites and, and medieval castles. So I suppose I picked it up from him as well. Really. Okay. <laughs> I'd be interested to see like, what, or hear what your thoughts are in regards to, to social media and the impact that it's that it's had being able to share the the photos and, and get that kind of response. Because up until getting onto Twitter and putting things out there, did you really have much much of an opportunity to, to kind of demonstrate your photographs to people? I mean, obviously, I'm guessing, like, immediate kind of friends and family so much. But obviously, Twitter is, in particular has allowed you to reach a lot of people. In some respects, have you been quite surprised as well at the, the reaction that it's garnered? Uh, yeah, well... Before the advent of, of social media, it was just sort of friends and family looking at the, the work, so um, that was it. Um, I um, submitted some uh, photographs and transparencies to travel companies. So, uh, for example, Explore, the walking tour holiday, uh, they had one of my shots as a cover a few years ago. That This was, pre- this was when I actually sent in slides, transparencies, and they, uh, they actually used uh, the photograph on the cover, and I... Uh, took a couple of the, um, the the tour leaders as well, and they ended up in their sort of profile pages. But apart from that, no, I, um, it's um, it's really since so I, I um, had a sort of lull, employment lull in about 2012, and then just thought, well, I'll give this Twitter thing a go and started posting up. And it was general stuff, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And then I sort of started to put more Hadrian's Wall, and that, that seemed to develop a, a following, really. So, and it, and it all sort of branched from there. But, yeah, um it's, if you can word the, it's about the photography, but it's also about wording the um, uh, photograph as well in a certain way. I mean, for example, I volunteer excavated in the line, I've been doing that for 10 years. Um, if you're getting out some timber, say a timber post, um, in itself, uh, it's not uh, it's not value, it's not gold, it's not silver, archaeologically it's interesting. The, the um, If you get it to the point where there's been, um, the post has been uh, sharpened to a stake, um, and then it's obviously pushed into the ground. If you photo- I photographed one of these a while ago, and I put it up on Twitter, just saying, you know, amazing, these are showing the axe marks of a Roman soldier, and, uh, you know, this all happened 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago. And um, the way you word them really seemed, seemed to inspire people, um, you know, um, almost as, in fact, more than sort of putting up sort of finds that might be sort of metal alloy or, um, you know, something a little bit more sort of, sort of precious if you like so yeah it's all about the wording as well it just seems to fire people's imagination and also i forget that you live in the north of england and northumberland and the lakes and it's very verdant up here because of the rain you get but um you know you get a follower down in austin in texas or uh, you know uh, california or in the midwest or whatever or central or you know australia into the center and it's not like that, and 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 they're looking at, at the pictures, and, and you know they're seeing this bird and greenery, and they're enjoying the landscape, and so on. It's a totally different thing for them. It's a, not alien, but it's not something they see very much of. So yeah, and, and and certainly in political times in the states and here, you know, people have contacted me directly, just saying, you know, thanks for putting up a nice photograph in the morning. It's just a reason to sort of get up a little bit, you know, which is which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you're getting on a packed commuter train in the morning, imagining yourself walking along Hadrian's Wall with the sun rising is a much more appealing uh, situation to be in. Do you think as well with the photographs that you take, I mean, you mentioned about, like, for example, a stake at Vindolanda. So, I mean, did you photograph that actually at the site when it was being 
taken out. I mean, do you think there's something to be said as well about the photographs kind of giving the context of finds? Like obviously, when you see a find in a museum or you see something that's been brought into the portable antiquity scheme and they photograph it, they put it online, it's an object and it might look great, but it's completely removed from its context. Actually seeing it being taken out of the ground or something like the wall where it's actually in that landscape... Um, do you think that, that that plays a role as well, that it connects it to, to, to where it's come from? Very much. I mean, in, in, in terms of the timber work at Vindalanda, it, it's usually um, bare minimum four, uh, four feet down if you're lucky, uh, but generally you're talking six to seven feet down for the timber work. Uh, and, and anything that um, is valuable, like the, the toilet seat or... Um, or um, furniture or inscribed planks or bits of board or bath clogs made of wood they obviously come out for conservation but um, so really photograph i find photographing that in context um, really brings it home as to where it is uh, and also um the the level of work that's needed to get down to these layers is it's not underappreciated but it's not um it's not something that a lot of people think about so with roman with the roman force of inland you've got sort of nine forts one on top of another uh, layers and layers of hardcore of puddled clay um going one layer on top of another which obviously causes the anaerobic conditions because it's all sealed in but um, when you see say a photograph of the stake in the foreground and then this depth behind it, where it's come from it, it gives people a better idea of, of you know it's, it's context so yeah and it's yeah um, yeah the timber work really springs to mind in that respect mm. how did your interest in the Romans get sparked uh, well really the it's okay just having a father he was a school teacher he wasn't a history teacher he did economics and maths but his history was always uh, a big hobby of his and um so we would we would just disappear off Easter holidays, and we were never at home. We were always away. He hated just doing nothing over the holidays, so we would always go and camp somewhere. So it was always very really cheap. But um, yeah, so we places like Vaison la Romaine, Orange, Arles um, for the amphitheatre there, um, and then even at home at places like Bath and uh, you know Hadrian's Wall as a photograph of me at Housesteads at aged eight or something. Mm. So I've always had that. And Father took me to Karnak in Brittany. And we, we did a sort of tour of every sort of megalithic monument he could sort of drive to. So we did a lot of time um, exploring a lot of sort of um, uh, Neolithic and uh, pre-Roman landscapes in France and so on. And when I did history at school and then sort of moved over to do that, I was actually very much into the Wiltshire landscape. So I was concentrating on Avebury. And that's where my interest in, was lying in West Kennet and all that sort of... And I walked the Ridgeway quite young at 15 and then I went on to do a um, volunteer dig at uh, Crickley Hill, just above um, Cheltenham. And um, we worked on a, it was a, a huge excavation. I can't remember how long it went on for, 20 years in the end or something like that. But um, that was a, um, a Neolithic site with some Dark Age uh, thrown in as well. And I actually dug that. And I think on the second week, I found a small grain of charcoal, which was which was great. But um it taught me a lot about archaeology, but uh, you don't always find a lot, but it's all about the, the research. So sometimes not finding anything is evidence for you know nothing being there. So it's good research. But um, So after that point, I actually moved on and dig, did a, a dig at Rochester with uh, Phil Barker and Graham Webster. And um, there you're obviously digging the exercise hall, the palaestra and so on, the old works there, this huge structure. And uh, I thought, yeah, Roman, I like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like? Do you feel like, in some respects, as well, now that it's kind of a two-part question? Do you feel, in some respects, now as well, that 
you've kind of got a little bit of a brand going on, you might say, like in terms of the, the, the Roman photography, or are you tempted to kind of branch out into to different areas as well? Uh, I suppose I've got a, a, on Twitter anyway, I've got a sort of name for it. And then people have used to, David used my work a few times, and I do get contacted by people who are giving talks on uh, Adrian's wall saying, can I use your images uh, just to illustrate a talk and so on. So, um, so yeah, I suppose I've, I've got a bit of a brand going in it in a way. What I did is on Adrian's wall, I started to go out to places like Cholerton and Bywell looking for Roman stones in the churches, uh, Brampton Old Church and so on. So then I started to look at the church monuments around the, the Roman stones and look at those. So I started developing an interest in for, for Saxon and uh, for medieval uh, churches after that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm st- I, I, wherever it takes me, I tend to just drift uh, and, and do. So, yeah, sort of, um, I do have quite a, an interesting catalogue of um, sort of Saxon church architecture and so on now. So, you know, I'm slipping slightly into later periods but to be honest if it catches my eye and it's got a good story behind it i'll, I'll go and photograph it really or try and uh, tweet about it um but um if i ever feel the twitter feeds lacking it sliding a bit <laughs> people <laughs> started to blaze over then i'll you know i tend to just move back to roman again and you'd be surprised how it picks up again so uh, yeah so i guess it is a brand so people go yeah we'll go to pete for for, his, for the roman stuff you know like, oh he's sort of drifted into tudor england you know <laughs> <laughs> he sort of drifted. Um, in terms of um, travelling abroad, um, I've spent time in the Middle East, so I would like to do more around Jerusalem, really, in terms of some of the um, some of the finds that are going on there, and also, you know, Rome, Rome, or somewhere around there. I mean, Ian Haynes has been doing work in Rome and so on. And, mm. uh, sort of corresponding with Sophie Hay, uh, Professor uh, Doctor Sophie Hay, who was at um, uh, Pompeii for a while, and now he's still doing projects. Um, you know, Roman projects and so on. So, yeah, that would be interesting to go and do something like that, definitely. But, um, yeah, I, I went to Jerusalem maybe in 93 originally and sort of fell in love with the place in terms of the history and uh, the Jewish revolts. And uh, um, yeah, so, yeah, sort of, yeah, that sort of area I would like to sort of go and do more of. Okay. I mean, one of the things I find fascinating is that archaeology is such a... Photo, photo, I suppose you could say it's a photogenic subject, but there's something about <laughs> taking pictures of people to put them out there that, I don't know, it really does elicit a really kind of strong reaction from people. But I don't just mean in terms of, I think, history, but I, I think almost in some respects, like wanting to be part of that world. I mean, when I was an undergraduate at uh, Reading, we had to go to Silchester and excavate there. And every year now, since then, I still see people posting photos from Silchester because it's still going on in some capacity or another. And when I see it, not just not just like the actual archaeology itself, but people being involved in it and people getting enjoyment out of it. And I think archaeology as well is very much a group subject, uh, or is actually when, when Ian Haynes was on the podcast, a, a team sport is how he referred to it, uh, which it very much is. I think when I see a lot of photos of archaeology, not just, as I say, in terms of objects or buildings, but also the kind of the people involved, that there's that kind of sense of community. And I think that really helps sell the importance of archaeology to people people more widely. Yeah, I mean, team spirit with everybody sort of having their own little... Um, yeah, it's very democratic. I mean, just coming off the hill, pilgrimage, uh, I, there was four different coaches, four different uh, um, experts... Four brilliant experts, um, four, eight in fact, sorry, my mistake. 
and, and they all had different opinions on wall walks and valum use and, and uh, various aspects of the Roman wall. So, um, yeah, a, a team sport with, with a lot of different differing opinions. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't do an archaeology degree. I, I, my, my idea, I came from it through volunteering for archaeology and the photography side of things. So um, in terms of the photography that I do, it's anything I can see and understand, I'm hoping that other people can um, look at on my Twitter feed and see the same thing. So, for example, at Vindolanda this year, with it, they actually c- cut um, a section through the turf ramparts of one of the earlier forts. You can see that striation of the... Um, of the of where the turfs have been laid down in this in this fantastic sort of uh, vionetta, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you want to use an ice cream metaphor, um, that's something that if you go to visit the site and you watch people do, you can look over and see that rather than um, a very complex layer of, of intercutting ditch systems from different periods, which requires a more professional eye. Which obviously, if you go, Marta and Andy can tell you all about. Um, but um, you, uh, you know, I just like that. Um, um, every man sort of appealed trying to get the photography that people can stand there and actually look at it themselves and go, well, Pete's given me a nudge in Twitter and, and I can remember this and and, and, um, and and sort of go and look at it myself. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think this, I mean, this is one of the things that kind of impressed me with the, the, the book that's coming out is the fact that, as you say yourself, like you've come to it more for a, a voluntary path rather than through a professional career that's led you up to this point. And... And one of the big things about archaeology, I think, uh, I suppose this transcends across most subjects, but I do feel quite strongly that everybody has their contribution to make to it and that people can come in with fresh eyes from different backgrounds and make contributions that people that perhaps have even been doing it for like 20, 30, 40, whatever years don't necessarily see because sometimes you get so ingrained into it it's very hard to then remove yourself from it take a step back and see it with with fresh eyes but when you have different people coming in with different uh as i say backgrounds different expertise that that really helps and obviously as you say in your case where you've come into it and done all this um photography and you know developed an eye for it you can probably see things and photograph things in a way and, and present them to people to to a wide audience as i say like no distress to david breeze but david perhaps would not be able to do it in the way that you've done it. Like, he, he needs your eye to provide those photos where, where he does the text. And those kind of coming together of minds, is, I think, is, is very important um, yeah. and makes the, the subject better as a whole. Yeah, I mean, um, maybe it's a bit sort of Emperor's New Clothes, really, where somebody actually points out something and it went, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. It, but, yeah, I, I like to sort of come well, thinking, well, if I can understand this, hopefully people on Twitter will... Um, you know, have a better understanding than me and will comment and give me some better ideas or correct me or somebody who maybe doesn't know the Hadrian's Wall to sort of level that I've experienced it, they will, it will give them something to, 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 um, to understand because I've sort of worded it and photographed it in a way that uh, might be accessible. So, yeah, I mean, with social media, can be, um, you know, it's a great sort of um, leveler, and you know, it's brought a lot of people into into the subject and so on, and it, and it reaches a whoever it be in the archaeological world can reach a, a greater audience, and try and foster more understanding, and also um, just people aren't that much different than they've always have been. People have got always have the same aspirations, whether they're Roman or. Neolithic or, or, or modern day Tudor, whatever, we, we all have the same aspirations in a lot of respects. 
Mm, yeah, I think as well, actually, that kind of relates back to what you were saying about putting things in context as well. I think the idea of finding, for example, a toilet seat really brings it back down to a very human level. You yeah. think about Adrian's Wall as this kind of big, colossal military monument, if you will. But when you see a toilet seat being brought out of the ground, the distance between us and the people living on Hadrian's Wall doesn't seem so far in terms of time. Uh, you know, they had to do their business in the same way we do nowadays. Well, maybe they share toilets more than we do. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I suppose as well, you, perhaps by demonstrating that as well, the hope is, is that you bring, as you mentioned, more people into the subject that perhaps wouldn't have engaged with it originally and might be via different angles, for example, you know, via photography, there might be people out there who haven't really grown up with much of an interest in history or archaeology, but they have grown up with an interest in photography, and then they see pictures of Hadrian's Wall and pictures of other monuments and objects, etc., and then they they think, oh, you know, there's something there in terms of photography, and then they get invested in it, but then once you start, I suppose, photographing something like that, then you probably want to know the story behind it, and it, and it draws people in in ways and in directions that perhaps going back even 10 years ago certainly 20 years ago probably wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been possible i guess well i mean mike uh, dr mike bishop did a, a great book which was 100 questions about adrian's wall which was great because you sort of dip into it and, and just find very direct questions to answers and um, that's a great book i own i advise anyone to go and pick that up and um it's also a bit like that with Twitter, though. You can get an almost instant response to one single question that might not appear in the books or maybe damn difficult to find, really. Like, what do they use for toilet paper? You know, it's <laughs> like... <laughs> that, that's a, just one question. It's that, that you hunt around to actually try and find the right book that would tell you that. Really. Yeah. yeah, it's like a, a friend of mine who's... Uh, well, actually, previous guest of the podcast, Rebecca Rushwood who's advising on a TV show to do with the Romans, they asked her, what did what did Roman people wear in bed? And she was like, I've got no idea. Like, it's just like, it seemed like a very, it's a kind of a very basic question. Like, yeah. You think this should be an easy one to answer. And then suddenly she was like, I don't actually know. And it was actually harder for her to find out than she thought it was going to be. Sometimes some of those very basic kind of elements to, to everyday life, uh, from an academic perspective, you don't even think about. Because I suppose sometimes academia does become more about grander narratives and about the extant material culture but something like what do people wear in bed doesn't necessarily always jump into your mind as being something to to think about well it's i had a tweet i posted a picture of um a shot from the top of windshields at the highest point of Hadrian's wall um, at sunrise and the wall there for me i mean a short chap's about shoulder high in places but um i I posted a picture and then a, a chap in the states tweeted me back and said um you'd have thought they'd have built the wall higher wouldn't you and I went, and I thought, oh, he's humouring me. So I put a sort of emoji of a man, you know, in thought position. And um, I went, yeah, I'd have thought that too. You know, thinking, oh, you were having an in-joke here, you know. This is nice banter. And then he, he got back to me a day later and went, no, really, I thought they would have built the wall a lot higher. And then I suddenly thought, not everybody knows about the height of things. And maybe I'm sort of in this intermediate world of, um, of Hadrian's Wall now where I'm not an academic, but I'm... You know, I sort of have a good knowledge base about the, the wall that, um, yeah, that some people obviously don't have because they don't know about it, which is, you know, which I don't about a lot of subjects. So, yeah, I suddenly thought, oh, step back here. This is. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, you get, once you get 
a degree of expertise in something or knowledge about something, some things always seem very apparent to you where yeah, yeah. in actual fact, like to a lot of people, they're not. Again, going back to a previous guest of the podcast, when I had Becky Newson on, Becky works as a tour guide out in Rome. You're getting people that are, you're showing around a site, but they can literally know absolutely nothing. No, like even just like what you assume is like the most basic level, you, you they just don't necessarily know. I mean, no, not through any for their own, and you don't necessarily have to know. And, you know, in some cases, there's no reason to know about that stuff. But even still, that's the that's the that's the thing. I think particularly when you're in the academic world or the archaeology world or or any sort of uh, subject for a lengthy period of time. There's certain things that you do you come across so often and so repeatedly that it becomes apparent to you, and then you do sometimes just forget that for a lot of people it's not so apparent. Um, just bearing that in mind. So sometimes when people ask a question where you're just like, "That's obvious," being like, "That's still a good question." <laughs> Everyone's got to start somewhere. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when I'm volunteering at, at uh, Vindalanda, sometimes I'm against against the fence uh, with a, a tray of pottery finds, uh, just answering questions and. You know, uh, quite often it's the chronology of the Roman, um, the, you know, 300, 400 years of Roman history um, is, you know, oh, why is Vindalanda? So where's where's Hadrian's Wall? Oh, well, so I'll say, oh, it's over on that ridge. You can just see the, the plantation just above the Milking Gap, um, you know, um, over in the distance there. And they say, well, why is it so far from Hadrian's Wall? And then you have to say, well, because Vindalanda was actually built in starting, the first port was around AD 85, you know, that was the grandparents of the people who, who built Hadrian's Wall. So it's putting the, the, the various features of Hadrian's Wall and the Roman landscape into a 400-year-old context, which is very hard. Not everything was suddenly built at once. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it, it forces you to, to think about time scales as well when the questions come through. Some really good questions we get asked at Binder London. And some ones I just go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've never answered that one before. That's a great question. Sometimes it's good as well when you get a question that you can't answer. Because it makes you go away and have to look it up. <laughs> I mean, I find that even with students, they'll like, occasionally get asked something, and you're like, "I actually have no idea," because it just hasn't hasn't occurred to me, or I've not come across it. And yeah, that's the thing. People asking you questions, you can actually learn a surprising amount from them asking stuff of you. Yeah, it's um, you know, how much lime mortar do they use? Were all the walls, um, you know, um, fully mortared or just rubble fill, or you know, um, and where were the lime kilns? Uh, how many lime kilns do you think people would have need to have made the, the lime mortar to, to build the walls of the fort? And, um, you know, all these questions are, well, I don't know, I'm going to have to go and find that out from a, an academic book. Or um, So, yeah, yeah, there's, there's great questions out there to, uh, to, to be asked. But I, I, try and, I try and always bring the questions back to um, the personal. I mean, a few years ago, um, in one of the, the um, we got down to one of the wooden uh, buildings within um, the Vicus area. We pushed through the floor into one of the early Roman forts, because obviously some of the forts were a lot larger in the London and the, the stone fort that exists now. So we went down to a, a level where they'd actually been demolishing the old fort prior to sort of laying foundations for a new fort. And um, we found a timber that had been flattened, uh, kicked down and fallen down, just a building post. And when I, when I actually lifted the, the timber out, maybe about two feet long, and stuck in the back was a crowsfoot's um, crowbar. Hmm. which obviously some guy demolishing the fort had lost. So uh, personally, you know, I tell that story because it, it's a connection with the person who lost it because we all lose screwdrivers and spanners and God knows what around the house, pens. And uh, to find that was, was, was quite something, to find someone someone had lost hmm. um, a 
very human story, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so taking as we were saying earlier, taking it down to like the basic level of everyday life is what really I think enables people to connect with the past. I mean, it's great having these grand narratives, and it's great to read about emperors and battles, etc. But also, you know, that kind of oh, people weren't so different to us. Really, I think actually adds to the appeal of it. I mean, the large. I mean, you know, Vindolando, you you had the. Um... The troops in, uh, say Fort Four, which was quite a, a sizable fort. There. Um, you had the, the soldiers in, then you had the slaves, and you had the sort of the various um, hangers-on, um, the unofficial camp followers, if you like. And you're talking a population of five thousand or more, and uh, that's that's quite a sizable community there, you know. So all living very sort of personal lives, really, which. Um, you know, to delve into that sort of quite a, a privilege if you ever sort of dig there. Do you actually have um, a particular favourite spot up on the wall? I would say I will accept the Carborough Mithraeum is the best answer, but <laughs> you're free to, free to challenge that. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Um, well, I quite like um, the site of Milecastle 40, which is just up from Steel Rig, because obviously that gives you a very long view over... Uh, the wall as it sort of flows towards eastwards towards um, um, Housesteads and you get Cragluff in there but also I can see across the Barkham Hill where the signal stations would have been in down to the south Tyne and, and just that whole sweep north as well so I suppose it's because when I stay on the wall I'm, I tend to be in that middle section so it's very easy just for me in an evening just to stroll up there and sit in the remains of the, the earthworks and, and just sort of in, in, just enjoy that landscape. Mm. So, yeah, but if I had to pick somewhere, I've got plenty of places I love to be. Mithraeum, yes, but um, yeah, Milecastle 40 on the site, I would definitely enjoy that spot. Yeah. On a more negative note, all your photographs recently appeared in a couple of newspaper articles about people that have damaged the wall. Yeah, the, the, the section of the wall at Steel Rig is um, claytonized, so it's, um, it's not mortared. It's like a giant dry stone wall with a, a sort of rubble and soil fill um, that Clayton's men sort of put back up, excavated and sort of put back up. And the Ministry of Works looked after it for a while, and then the National Trust own it now. Uh, um, when I was staying at um, in May at um, the Twice Brood, I had a room that faced the wall, and from my uh, window, I was looking out on the Sunday morning, and you could actually see people jumping onto the wall, three in this case, on the steel rig, and then you see the arm go up, which is the selfie arm, because mm-hmm. they're all having a and one by one, you see three disappear, so they're jumping off. So I walked up to steel rig in the morning just because I had some um, time to spend. It was a sunny morning. Went up there, and then the whole side, north south side of the Clayton Wall, which is unmortared, had completely fallen away. And um, it was a real shock because I'd seen stones off before now, but never, a, and I've seen collapses before, but never a collapse as large as that one. Um, that wasn't done that morning. That was, I don't know when, but the, the soil in there was very fresh, so it was quite regular. What happens is, is, despite the fact that when you get off at Steel Rig Car Park, there's a sign there, the National Trust put up saying, do not climb on the wall. And at the bottom, at Peel, where Peel, um, uh, Peel Crag is in the tower at the bottom, um, there's another National Trust sign saying, do not climb on the wall, this is very fragile. People still climb on it. So they walk along the top, and they sort of damage the turf, and push the stones out or pull the stones out when they're trying to climb on or climb off. And then the, we only need one proper Northumberland drenching and um, it gets into the, the middle and then just brings the whole wall down. So it's not a case of one person climbing on the wall and 30 feet fall down. It's uh, it's, a, it's an accumulation of this going on. So um, it's just frustrating, really. I, I understand that people aren't, you know, they just see it as this endless thing that they can just do, but it, the 
Yeah, it just um, it just needs more education really than than anything else. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? People don't really realise because, as you say, it's um, one person climbing on the wall doesn't necessarily create that much damage. But over time, when people repeatedly do it, you know, it's a I was going to say it's not a brick in the wall, but quite the reverse. Um, <laughs> you know, it has that negative. It's like a kind of erosion of it. And but yeah, that's the thing. You put signs up saying "Don't walk on the wall," but they can't police the wall, and people are up there and. They see the opportunity for a good photo, and maybe maybe I'm turning old. When I say like, has it gotten worse now? Just because I know you see the like, stories now, even on the news. Of I remember recently on the news, I, I think they were talking about somebody that had died after falling off a uh, ledge face when they were abroad because they kind of climbed over it to try and take a selfie, and then they'd fallen off. And you know, I think nowadays where you have things like Instagram um, and social media, like the pressure sometimes for people particularly if they want to be in the photograph themselves, to get themselves into these crazy positions. Um, I, with the, um, yeah, I mean, as a photographer, I don't want to see signs all over the place saying, do not do this, do not do that, because A, it ruins the picture, and B, I don't want a, a, a nanny landscape like that. Um, what would be nice is, um, if you go to English Heritage's website about Adrian's Wall, or um, you look at any of their publications or any of their museums, um, there's, uh, I personally can't find anything um, or, or find very little saying, uh, uh, you know, a sort of code of conduct. You know, I mean, if you mm-hmm. go to uh, nature reserves and things like that, there are signs up just in the cafe or something, you know, follow the country code. I mean, that's uh, something that we all tend to learn at school or something. So, you know, just a little bit more signage within the guidebook or I don't know. Um, I mean, when I tweeted that on Sunday morning, I just thought that maybe 20 people on, who were maybe half awake on a Sunday would um, retweet or see that tweet, and um, by the time about two weeks was up, I'd had, um, it had been viewed 100,000 times, that particular tweet, um, which was, was quite uh, amazing, but um, I, um, I, I, I spoke to the chap David from the Hexham Courant, and he did a very sensitive article about it and I also said contact the National Trust because the, there's other things that work here weather damage as well so he did and he, he, he wrote a very balanced article which was great and then it was syndicated and um, it sort of ran away after that a couple of the newspapers handled it um, quite well and then it, it sort of ran away a little bit in terms of just being you know look at these selfless idiots and stuff like that which is we're not quite what we were aiming for with the current and my original tweet you know was was it was just um yeah i i, I saw for the first time in media which i've never really dealt with a thing where something just runs away with itself and you suddenly have no control over how it how it's portrayed anymore so i mean that was a story that came and went and hopefully it'll stick in people's minds and for the rest it'll be yesterday's news you know uh, chip paper but um it sometimes gives me the impression that um, these people who want to be famous for being famous um, don't realise and I that um, if it's about them, the papers will write what they want and you have no control over it. Mm. Mike at Hadrian's Wall, and I, some of the coverage after the story had been syndicated, I wasn't particularly happy about how they portrayed it, and my name was attached to it. Um, but that wasn't really about me, it was about the wall with my name in it. But, um, so I did see from the point of view of um, people wanting to be famous that if they suddenly decided to centre themselves around this and the newspapers picked it up, you have no control. And you see why people end up damaged once they've been in 
you know, they've got famous for no particular reason. So, you know, it, it was a salutary lesson for me as to how the media works sometimes. Yeah, no, even just from an archaeological perspective, I know people, including myself, do get slightly annoyed every time I see the, the Pompeii of the North, the Pompeii of this, the Pompeii of that. And I don't think any actual excavator ever refers to anything when they're talking to the media as being the Pompeii of such and such. But that's always like an addenda they put into the into the title. And I just know that you talk to people, in particularly in archaeology, and when stuff gets put into the media, a lot of the time stuff doesn't get portrayed in the way that they feel it should have been portrayed. But the, the media's obviously got its own kind of agenda. I've got to sound like Trump now. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, the media's obviously like, you know, they want to put a story out there. They want, to, they want people to click on it or they want people to pick up the newspaper. So they have to put in, like, these headlines and, and these comparatives and, you know, that aren't really there. And I know it frustrates... I think it frustrates the, the people that have actually excavated it and, and, and shared that story because as you're kind of saying that they then feel their names attached to it and they feel that they're, they are being misrepresented in what they've said about the site. Yeah, there is that kind of tension that exists between you want the the message to get out there and you want to see it going online and newspapers or whatever, but at the same time, it's that there's always that risk of how far does it go where the story gets a little bit twisted or it gets kind of put in, it gets framed in ways that you're not particularly happy with and yeah, that's, that's a very difficult uh, line to walk, I think, and find a balance in. Well, it was the finale season of Game of Thrones, so, um, you know, a lot of it was, um, because Game of Thrones is um, uh, um, has this sort of connection in terms of being inspiration for, uh, for, for part of it, that, um, you know, they framed it, because Game of Thrones was ending then as a finale, they, they were framing it around this Game of Thrones selfie, you know, selfish people climbing on the wall, really, which was their handle. That was their clickbait to get to get people sort of to look at this, really. So, it was, well, that's their agenda, really. Well, what I've, I would have liked to have seen, and um, I'm sort of quite happy to be corrected on this, is that um, I'd like. I feel that um, 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 for for people from the National Trust and English Heritage, not to um, to, to to come in on this because. I don't want to be wrong about this, and I don't want to create some story that doesn't exist. But um, in the whole of thing, after five hundred, after a hundred thousand hits, and this being in the paper, the response from Heritage certainly contacted me, and uh, for me to maybe to retweet a reply from them was nothing, absolutely nothing, complete silence, zip. I mean, if they'd have come back and said, look, Pete, you're completely wrong. This is nothing to do with people climbing on the wall. This is just weather damage. You know, stay out of it. I mean, if they'd send me a personal message like that, I hope they wouldn't, but that would have been something. But there was literally nothing came back and no response to the tweet, even though I pinned them into it. So I contacted National Trust's, National Trust's press office via Twitter. And very kindly, I did get an email back about five days later about rebuilding the wall and you know, not to walk on it. So that was very good from the trust to get back to me, and I thank the people for that. But um, I find English Heritage, there's some very well-meaning people, and the archaeologists and the and the conservators and the people I meet along the wall, they're just absolutely fantastic. But I, I don't, I don't under, quite understand where the reluctance to put anything in their information about, you know, be safe, don't walk on the wall, for your own safety comes in. I don't want them to be nannies, but... Every, every so often or in some sort of minor way just to comment on this. But they didn't. I, I just found that was really... St- they just had a, a news blackout on it. I was sort of left out on a limb on that one, really. So I felt, um, you know, I was appealing for their, you know, feedback, but 
none was forthcoming, really. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that is very odd. I mean, it doesn't take that long to write some sort of tweet in response to that, just even yeah. acknowledging it and say they're going to do something about it. But um, hopefully, uh, hopefully it has it has reached them and they are they are going to do do something about it. But who knows? I know I know English heritage hasn't uh, necessarily been in the best of ways in, in recent years because of all cuts and things like that. So as I know, it's um, yeah, it's a difficult time all round, I suppose, in in, in the heritage sector. But uh, but as you say, still it's. Um, I mean, if they don't maintain the heritage, <laughs> there's not going to be much to work with. So, yeah. I mean, uh, Mike Bishop, I was on the walk with um, the pilgrimage. You know, he's been. Um, I'm just a newcomer. I mean, I'm, I'm a newbie at this, but uh, uh, with um, you know um, Helen Fort and uh, Mike Bishop, they've been running them sort of minimus, putting leaflets out and and um, and uh, minimus mouse that the. the, the Children's books about yeah. teaching Latin. Podcast, podcast guest for this week just gone. In fact, actually, uh, just before we started recording this, I released this week's episode, as in what, what would be now the previous week's episode, which was actually with Helen talking about Pumas as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, she's been doing with, with Mike uh, leaflets and uh, bookmarks. You know, Minimus, you know, understands how the wall is fragile and things. So they've been putting out their own publicity to try and, you know, um, educate in that way and put them into some museums and sites and things like that so you know they're used as bookmarks by children because that's the best way of learning not to walk on the wall when you're you're young you know um so yeah they i'm a new, relative newbie at this so it does you know it does gall me a little bit really so uh, maybe i should be so precious about things but um anyway no i think you've got to really i mean if um you know if you're not going to make the effort to to protect the heritage then it can uh rapidly rapidly disappear i mean you know it's not on the same level but you look at stuff that's happening like north africa and in the near east in recent times i mean you realize that i think in some respects we're quite fortunate where we are in terms of at least at the moment touch wood uh, <laughs> in my lifetime we won't ever have to see any issues like that affecting our heritage but it just goes to show that you know we are quite lucky that we have so much heritage around us that by and large is actually in a relatively good state for given how old a lot of it is but if you're not going to then protect it if you're not going to try to look after it even on a low level of just giving as you say people a code of conduct then uh, then it, it can only take a few years before that stuff can really be damaged beyond any sort of repair yeah i was lucky in the 90s i actually went to syria and i went to uh, across um, syria so i did go to uh, palmyra so i'm sort of one of the lucky few probably who saw it as as was so um, yeah maybe that's uh, um well, you know, if we haven't, thank God, we haven't got that situation over in the in in, in the UK. But uh, you know, in terms of seeing the, the utter destruction of, of, of Palmyra, you know, you, maybe maybe it has sensitised me a little bit to, to seeing people, you know, damaging the wall. I mean, you know, where next to where the sign is, the National Trust have put up a sign saying the wall is fragile, don't climb on it. There are three stones out. There were three stones out of the wall next to the gate, which people have either knocked off climbing off the wall at that point or they've literally pulled out of the wall so they can use those as steps to climb onto the wall so it's just those yeah <laughs> mm. i mean just now turning towards an end and, and sort of picking up onto hopefully a more positive note <laughs> is yeah. Oh, yeah. have you got any thing on the horizon any plans coming up in future anything um in in the pipeline at all or is it all just uh, about the, about the book coming out at the moment uh, well, hopefully the, the book's moving into a few more shops. So uh, I'm hoping to, uh, if the offers are out there, to actually go maybe with Mark and possibly David if he's free, he's a busy man, uh, to maybe 
go and do a few talks about the book and uh, how we photographed and uh, and how Mark illustrates and so on. So we've got a few irons in the fire there, maybe to promote the book. And so if anybody out there is um, uh, keen to, to have me and Mark sort of pop along one evening and talk, and we can do it, then that would be nice. Uh, in terms of other books, um, I think uh, me and Mark were possibly looking at um, a more of a coffee table book of the wall area because uh, obviously Mark's such a fantastic illustrator and writer then um, you know it, it could be a nice project to do something along those lines I'm also um, considering I've, I've got quite a lot of sort of Roman photography um, from around the UK now so uh, I'm looking at sort of um, uh, putting that into some sort of book form maybe a, an illustrated guide to uh, to Roman Britain maybe you know, 10 best places to visit or something like that, maybe as a photographic. So, yeah, it's mainly about the book at the moment, but I'm sort of considering what to do this winter and, and how to, to work it. Uh, I'm just going live with a couple of, with a, with a new website for photography as well. So you can order prints from the book and then either get, um, and then they'll be, you can either download them as a, as a download or you can um, just basically go over to um, the print site to, print side of things and then select your print size or a canvas or whatever and get it posted off for Christmas so that's in the process of launching at the moment mm. I mean just to just to kind of oh, I suppose finish on in terms of the question what, what would be your advice to people out there that want to go out and they they see your work and they get interested in photography of, of ancient monuments and ancient artifacts etc purely from as you kind of come from yourself like an interested background rather than necessarily professional but they see that and they get interested i mean would you have any advice for somebody that wants to go out and kind of follow in your footsteps so to speak in, in terms of what you've done or? well the thing is is, is um, with in terms of photography going out is the best camera you've got is the one you actually have with you which in my case quite a lot of the time is just the iphone so just take photographs and, and take a lot of them and um you know, just um, uh, appreciate the landscape you're in. There are plenty of great books out there. My my always go-to books only for Hadrian's Wall is um, is the 14th edition of the Handbook of the Roman War written by David Breeze, but obviously that's been going since the uh, 19th century. And that's my, my go-to book where I always start because that features the whole wall in there from Mile Castle, you know, from the start right down to the coastal defences. Um, so... Um, uh, that would be my first thing, but um, there's, there's plenty of information out there, and um, people in the museums um, are always fantastic and approachable. So you know, it's never be afraid to ask questions when you go to these sites. You know, go to Vindaland if the digs on, talk to the diggers, talk to Andy, talk to Marta over the fence. Just a case of just get out there and do it, really. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't be ignorant. Just just ask just ask questions and go and photograph and. Um, yeah, it's just just preserve an interest and always just keep saying, what's next? Why is this? Why is that? It's just been inquiring. Mm. That's mm. what set me off in, onto this sort of road, really. Yeah. So if people want to, if you want to check out the website, the address for that is? My, uh, if you go to the my uh, Twitter feed, um, which is um, just at Pete underscore Savin, or you can go on to um, Facebook, and I also have a website on there called Rome's Northern Frontier, which covers mainly Roman Britain, but mainly the Antonine Wall and Hadrian's Wall. So either of those two sites, and there'll be a link up there to the uh, to the website. Okay. And also through your through those as well, you can also order copies of the book, I'm guessing. You can connect to... Um, is, it, is it available online uh, to buy online? Uh, there's a, I'll put a link up there to Bookcase, uh, which is based, which is uh, Steve up in Carlisle, uh, who's uh, published the book for us. Um, and I'll put the link up there so you can actually order direct from the shop um, 
Cognito books in Hexham along the wall have just taken um, hard copies of, as well. So you can download, you can order from uh, Bookcase and order from Cognito as well. Um, say the book was only launched a week and a half ago, so it's just a matter of the word getting out, and uh, and then we're, we're hoping. Um, uh, one or two of the sites um, on the wall itself, uh, Sen House, some of the um, uh, English heritage properties will start to uh, to take it, and uh, hopefully um, Amazon or Waterstones will pick it up as well. So um, yeah, the word's getting out there. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it's a nice, um, it's very photo rich. It's got fantastic text by um, David Breeze, and um, you've also got the illustrations, which are superb from Mark, including the front cover. But uh, we did it as a very thin looking paperback it's um so uh, in terms of the people who are on the pilgrimage flying in from the states amsterdam and australia and so on even china we had a guy from china uh the book's nice and light so it, it's flight flight friendly if you like for, uh, okay. for luggage so um yeah it's great and it doesn't obviously won't cost as much to post okay right fantastic well thank you very much for doing this no problem. I hope it wasn't too negative. You got me onto the, the wall. A bit. Oh no 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 I mean, no no. We 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 need to. We, we it's not negative. It's it's um it's you know getting the message out there to be to be careful about how you treat ancient ancient monuments, which I think is a is an important message. Yeah, I tend to steer away from most of the time, really, unless something really bad happens. Really. So. Yeah. No, I'm just glad. To, it's just nice to see people up there and enjoying it, and and and. It's nice when I'm in the pub and you can get talking to people, so yeah, yeah. Without too much of a wall bore. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org and in the background right now you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.